Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Tracy Ray from the employment law firm of Baron Lehman. Tracy says that OPB sponsorship is a great way to support the community and connect with Baron Liebman's clients. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. By most accounts, the opioid crisis has become a fentanyl crisis. It's fueling addiction and overdoses, and people in need of treatment often have no options. Enter the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde. They started their Great Circle Recovery Program in Salem two years ago and recently opened a second clinic in Portland. We wanted to understand what this work looks like right now. So we met up with Executive Director Kelly Rao, Operations Director Jennifer Wirth, and one of their clients, Albert, who's been in recovery for about a year. We were in a meeting hall at St. Anthony's Catholic Church, which is around the corner from Great Circle. I started with Kelly Rao. I asked why they opened the first clinic two years ago. At Grand Ron, the tribe had been noticing, you know, the epidemic happening. Um, we have tribal members that we have sent forward for treatment for years, decades, really. We'd spent millions of dollars um, on our tribal members um, in residential treatment and had a lot of recidivism, a lot of people relapsing. Um, they'd come back to the community and um, they would relapse. And it was something that, you know, we don't give up on our tribal members. We are always looking to take care of our people. We love our tribal members and we want to help them, but we would see them relapse and know that we were not able to help them. So we started looking at how could we bring um, treatment to our people and do it in a way that we had more ability to control and why are we not doing this ourselves? It's always kind of something that had been on um, my radar since I came to the tribe. And when we started looking at doing um, opioid treatment services, I had reached out to um, some people that I knew in programming for this and said, who do you know that could help us stand up a treatment program? And um, they had referred me to Jennifer. And I met Jennifer here in Portland. We had tea. Um, and we started talking and we started dreaming and looking at um, what would it take. And the regs are um, probably about three inches thick, and that's just the federal regulations. <laughs> and we started trying to figure out how would we do this? What would be the programming needed? Um, what do we need to do to be able to help our people? And could we do it in a way that makes the most sense that isn't just a dose and go program, but is something that truly would help not just the Grand Ronde tribal members, but would really help the community around it because we know that people are not successful unless there is a, a community of recovery around them. And so that's what started our programming. Jennifer Worth, what's a dose and go program? What, what didn't you want to do? So it was really important to Kelly and to the vision of the Confederate Tribes of Grand Ronde to create services that had additional support. So for instance, we have a shower laundry tra trailer on site. We think about the other needs that lead to people struggling with opioid addiction, and we try to look at how to help um, navigate those barriers. And we meet people where they're at. So really thinking about food, um, hygiene, um, some of the very basic things that cause them to struggle and figuring out how to take those barriers and make them less stressful for them to start um, getting to a place where they can get treatment and um, be less at risk of an overdose. Hmm. When you were in those early conversations, Jennifer, when you were designing the way the clinic would work and what elements you would include, I mean, what was foremost on your mind? We, I jumped ahead to this phrase because that was sort of new to me. You didn't want to be dose and go, but what, what, were, what were your broad goals for what it would be? I really wanted to work with Kelly to create um, an environment where when people walked in the door, whether they stayed or engaged in services or not, they felt seen, heard, valued, and cared about the moment they walked in the door. And whether they engaged or not in services, they got that feeling so that when they were ready, they would come back. Because the most important thing is for people to feel seen and heard and cared about. In my experience, that a lot of times um, our population feels really stigmatized and just... Um, 
just not not cared about in the way that they deserve. And I really feel I felt that was important, and I wanted to bring that um, to the to the to the clinic. And one of the things that I love about our Portland clinic is when you open the door, there's this giant mural of the Willamette Falls that you see, and it just really ta- speaks to the tribe's values of embracing their people and the community and bringing people um, to making sure that people still feel seen and heard and valued. And so I just wanted to make sure that we put that into our design. Um, one of the other things, and Kelly helped me with this, is the camas flower is really important. So when you walk into the clinic all around the floor, we have camas flowers designed into the floor. And that's just to kind of bring some more of that element that's part of Grand Ron to anybody that comes into our program. Hmm. Um, I'm curious about that, that anybody, Kelly, the, the Oregon Health Authority has said that American Indian slash Alaska Native and black communities in Oregon experience dramatically higher rates of overdose deaths than other groups. Who do you serve here? So we, we serve everybody. Um, you know, for us, our, you know, our mission is for um, American Indian Alaska Natives, but we serve everybody. Our mission is to see our tribal members because, you know, we're the tribe, but we know that um, successfully treating the community is important. We want to serve everybody that is suffering from opioid uh, use disorder because that's the only way that we can help people and make people well and to heal people and with great circle recovery that's that's what we've been able to do is really get out there and and reach out and make people aware of the services and programs that we're offering and and make it something that is it it's bigger than just the medication and that it's bigger than just um um like like Jen said, we have programming that really reaches out and people feel it when they come in. It's that we we care about you, that it's it's something that has been um, told to us more than once. When people come in, they're like, it, this feels different. It, this feels very welcoming. Um, and that's exactly what we were going for. We wanted people to have that feeling of um, respect because I think in when people, especially just walking in the door is that first barrier. When somebody is struggling with opioid or any kind of addiction, having the courage to come through and ask for help is huge. And when they are able to just come through the door and ask for help, we want to be there and we want to know want people to know that, um, the stigma, there is none. We love you. We want to be there for you. And, we're here and that feeling to be able to communicate it um, without saying anything is the most important thing. So we are here for the community. Hmm. Well, Albert is with us right now and we've heard a lot already about that moment of first walking through the door. You did that about a year ago at the clinic in Salem. Do you remember that first day? Do you remember your walking in? Yeah. No, yeah. Kelly and uh, Jen, I think, both touched on that. Touched on that. Um, I think that I would say kind of like home, that feeling of home, because I was homeless before I got there, so um, I didn't feel a sense of belonging. I guess you could say. So that was a huge moment for me when I walked in. I didn't feel judged, and uh, I was able to trust uh, my counselor. Her name is Crystal Grimes, who works with me, and um, feel like I could talk to her about anything, and. Uh, but yeah, that sense of community, I think, is a big part that keeps me coming, going back there. Can you tell us what your life was like before you walked through the door? Yeah, I was, I was homeless. Um, I've had struggled with opioids for 10 years, like off and on, and other drugs also. But opioids was my biggest struggle, especially now with like fentanyl being in everything. And uh, I think I had pretty much lost everybody around me. I think everybody's trust, nobody believed in me, nobody trusted what I would say anymore. They're just like, oh yeah, you know, something something again, you know? You mean you'd burn those bridges? By yeah, that exactly. Point. Yeah, I'd burn those bridges already. And um, yeah, so I was homeless and um, my cousin actually went to Great Circle before me and he's the one that uh, told me about it and he was like, yeah, it's a, a great place. And um, I had never, uh, tried the medication 
methadone so he's the one that tried it first and you know told me about it and um i was like you know if it works for him then it's something that probably would work for me so had what did before you heard that from your cousin what were your thoughts about medication assisted treatment about methadone specifically no i um i don't think i i don't think i ever thought like it was possible, you know, you mean to, getting yeah, getting I mean, off of yeah. of using whether it was heroin or, yeah, or heroin. fentanyl at that point. Yeah, opioids. Yeah, yeah. I never thought it was possible to get off. Like, uh, you know, it was something that I had to struggle with and tried cold turkey or you know tried winging it off with different different drugs, you know, weed, marijuana. But yeah, I didn't think it was possible. You know, had you tried? I mean, so you'd sought treatment in other ways over that course of that decade, and yeah. they hadn't worked. Yeah. What What was it like when you started talking with your counselor? You, you mentioned her name is Crystal. Yeah. What was it like when you started opening up with her and, and meeting with her regularly? Well, uh, yeah, well, I'm kind of, like, really shy, so I'm really quiet, you know, and I kind of just stick to myself. And... uh I don't know. For some reason, I got that that feeling that I could trust her and uh, open up to her. So um, it took me a second, but um, they do other services too, you know, and have groups and stuff. So um, I was going to one of her groups and stuff, and slowly like building that kind of trust and um, you know talking to her and sharing, you know, what was really going on with me. You know, um, able to admit that there was something serious that I couldn't handle it alone you know it was something that I was going to need help with overcoming this addiction what's an average day like for you right now uh right now I'm working so that's that was huge for me I I wasn't able to hold the job down just with the with the withdrawals and stuff from from the drug use and stuff um it was impossible to to hold down a job um so right now I'm working I work graveyards so um, I sleep during the day, kind of wake up and go to the clinic and, you know, go get my medication and stuff and, um, squeeze in a group here, there, whenever I can. How has it been, um, working the graveyard shift? How does, how has that worked with your sobriety? For me, for me, I think it, it's helped me out a lot because, um, I'm sleeping during the day, so... It kind of gives me a little chance not to, you know, have as much free time, I guess, on my hands. Oh, and and night times you're working, and so yeah, you're less likely to get in trouble then. Yeah, exactly. Huh. Yeah, I'm at work, so I'm I'm busy, and by the time I get off, I'm tired, so I just want to go home and get some rest, you know. Hmm. Yeah. Jennifer, to to go back with you, um, what role do do methadone, which we've been talking about, but also suboxone, what do they play? What role do they play in in the work you do at these clinics? It's, it's a tool. It's a tool in, the, in what we use, and it's a really important tool with the opioid crisis and especially with fentanyl. Um, fentanyl's really um, just flipped kind of everything on its head in terms of use. We see younger and younger severe addiction and then even older. It's just there's this broad spectrum of who is impacted by severe opioid use disorder. Um, and I think that um, it's really important to, for clinics like ours to be seen as part of recovery and that there's no, there's, we need to just understand that it's just like any other medication and take the stigma out of methadone because methadone saves lives, especially in a fentanyl crisis or an opioid crisis like we have right now across the country. Um, and so the medication is what opioid treatment programs are centered around, but when the tribe built this opioid treatment program, Great Circle, they wanted the medication to be there and then the other services as well. And all OTPs are required to have counseling services and different things. Um, OTP, as, uh, opioid treatment programs. Mm -hmm. They have certain regulations of what they have to do. So we follow all those guidelines, but we also just have kind of the idea that more services are important, more recovery services, more relapse prevention services. And um, we have a kind of an area we call the recovery center that we've added on to the OTP where we do acupuncture and some other things as well. And we have a, a career area so people who are starting to kind of get a little more stable can come and search for jobs. And just, again, going back to the basics. Hmm. Kelly, what, 
what's culturally specific um, and, and tied to the Grand Ronde's long traditions? What comes from those traditions that is a part of the programming here? So culturally specific is really focused on um, building up um, the per- building up on the person's spirituality and really trying to um, reach back into that person and showing them that everybody's worthy and there is hope. And the idea that um, no matter where you've been and what you've done, that um, that you are lovable and that you are. Um, there's hope that we want you to come back um, no matter how many times it takes that if you relapse that it doesn't matter we want you back we we want you back every time because we don't want to lose you that we love you and it's important for you to um, come back to us so in terms of being culturally responsive we offer smudging as part of it our operations model is kind of built on that whole person-centered care a medicine wheel is this is the foundation of our operating model Um, and and then we offer, um, we have to kind of wait until our people stabilize a little bit before we can pull in all of the different cultural pieces. But we're starting to work on um, different groups. We have several specific groups that we offer that are culturally specific. And then with our, um, we have a mobile unit that we actually take out to the reservation and we coordinate a lot with our health and wellness um, program that's out there for any of the more in-depth cultural services. Um, but we do integrate those into the opioid treatment program. And now that we've been stabilized in Salem, we're starting to integrate a little bit more. But we had to be really cautious in the beginning because we were integrating a Western medicine and, and, and a new culture. So we were taking it very slow. And, you know, some of the things that we're doing at, at Grand Run um, at the clinic out there, we do we have a good medicine program that really is um, building up different. Um, we do um, jams where we're doing drumming and singing and we're um, doing some other things that are um, beating and um, weaving, different things like that, um, that eventually we want to be able to bring to the different clinics. However, some of it we have to be really thoughtful of the timing of it and um, when it's appropriate to bring it in and and like Jen said it has to be at the right time when people are are ready for it and um, it's the right timing of it I guess is the best way to say it and so we're working with them constantly. Hmm. Um, Kelly and Jennifer you've both talked about making sure that if someone comes and then they, they're not ready and they go and they come again and again and again, that, that you each time you want to be ready for them when they are ready, H- how often might somebody come before they say, I actually want to, to get treatment here? Starting and stopping is just part of the process because the addiction is not a straight line. Recovery is not a straight line. Depending on what model you're looking at, it's like a spiral. So people go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So in our program, we have restart stops and starts constantly. And we have people that will restart, I don't know, what, how many? 15? About 15 times. I mean, it just takes, and our, our thought is if they come in and they start and they come for a few days and they stop, the next time they come, it's going to be a little bit longer. And we make sure that they have Narcan relapse prevention tools. So when they leave, they know that we'll meet them right where they're at when they come back in the door. The other thing that's important to know is if folks are still using, we want to see them more, especially if they're using fentanyl, because we want to have them in the clinic being seen every day, you know, looking at them, monitoring them, giving them a known substance. Methadone is a known quantity. It's a known substance. When we see them and we're giving them medication, that's one less fentanyl pill they're taking on the street that day. Um, So it's really important that we meet them where they're at and that they know that they're welcome back when they're ready, we're there. And if they're not ready, we're also still there. What you're talking about is so much more complicated than I, I think an old, maybe never true, but but still pervasive idea of being cured, of of being in recovery. And that that is, you know, abstinence equals success. Um, But what does success mean to you? I'm actually curious to get all all three of your takes on this, but maybe Albert first. If that word, I'm curious what what that word means to you. Uh, I think it's about how you respond when 
you're knocked down, you know, if you stay down or if you get up and, um, cause failure is going to happen, you know, it's, it's how you go about it. Um, that defines success for me, you know, um, I think part of the reason why it takes a little bit longer is because they work with you to try to get the appropriate, um, dosage for you with the medication. Cause everybody's a little bit different. You know, there's a lot of different variables that go into, um, it with recovery and so it takes a little it takes a minute for them to find the appropriate um dose of medication where you're stable and you're not getting the cravings or um the urge to go out there and use again and uh so coming back is important to get that um that feeling of not you know that it's going to happen and you know not people not being disappointed in you you know and encouraging you to continue because as addicts i think we're used to you know getting the door shut on us and you know nobody believing that you know we're capable of more hmm. kelly Rao, what about you what does success mean from your perspective success is coming back and knowing that we're not judging and we're not um, there's no stigma for us. It's, it's, we know how powerful, um, fentanyl, the opioid, the drugs are, and that we are not looking down at anybody. We want them to come back no matter what. That is success to me. And Jennifer Worth? I think for me, it's knowing that that person isn't, o there's one less overdose. Um, just knowing that whether they're still using or they're working towards not dying when we have them come in and we see them to me that's one less overdose and that's why it's so important to keep that door open and to like limit different barriers that help people from transportation to food insecurity to all the things that no matter what a problem is you have to try to figure out those social determinants so I just think one less overdose. That was Jennifer Wirth, the Operations Director at Great Circle Recovery. We also heard from Executive Director Kelly Rao and Albert, one of their clients. We'll have a lot more after a short break. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. We're listening today to a recent conversation we had in St. Anthony's Church in southeast Portland. It's just down the street from Great Circle Recovery, which is an opioid treatment program. James Smith is a urinalysis tech at the clinic. Jim Laidler is the clinic's medical director. Dr. Laidler has been working in the field of addiction medicine for several years now after a long career in pain management. He told us he has never seen anything like the current crisis. And the problem with it has been that it's not only a hundred times more potent than heroin, but it has some features to it in that it is more rapidly addictive and harder to get rid of. And although it's for the people who are using it, it seems to be a fairly short-acting drug because it's so fat-soluble. It stays around much, much longer at low levels in the body, so it makes it harder to start somebody on a medication like buprenorphine or suboxone. Because it's because of the, the chemistry of fentanyl and, yeah. and the power of it. Right. The, the problem with Suboxone is that it's both a blocking agent and also uh, an opiate of its own right. But if you give it to somebody who still has some of the opiate on board, you can have precipitated withdrawal. So they actually feel a lot worse, even though they may actually feel like they're in withdrawal. Uh, we are having problems with people who had been abstinent for two or three days and felt like they were in terrible withdrawal, when we start buprenorphine, they'd actually feel worse. So we had to come up with some new strategies. It doesn't mean that buprenorphine doesn't work. It does work in fentanyl, but new strategies are needed. You know, the, the phrase that we hear a lot when we talk about people treating substance use disorder and, and in other mm -hmm. public health fields is harm reduction. But, um, I'm just thinking about what we were just hearing before the break from Jennifer Worth. That seems like sort of, that phrase seems so soft compared to the stakes right now. It seems like we're not talking about harm reduction. We're talking about death reduction. That's the way I see it. Um, we're, our job first and foremost is to get people some stability in their lives so they stop pursuing the fentanyl and reduce their risk of death. Uh, the problem... There's so many problems with fentanyl, but one of them is that unlike heroin, heroin, you could look at it, you could see the quantity of heroin you were getting. You could weigh it out. <clears throat> I mean, you knew 
you know, it, you might suspect that it might be diluted, but the problem with the fentanyl pills is that every pill might have anywhere from, well, this is from the DEA, anywhere from 50 micrograms of fentanyl, which is a millionth of a gram, to five milligrams. So a hundredfold range in their amount. And they all look the same. And there's no way to tell. And as I tell my patients, I said, God only knows what you're getting because the person who sold it to you doesn't. I mean, it's just, it looks like every other pill and it is literally Russian roulette, especially when you consider, and I, I especially concerned about new users, people who are younger, usually trying it out for the first time because the lethal dose of fentanyl is two milligrams. That's considered the lethal dose for 90% of people who are opiate naive. So right now, the average amount in fentanyl pills is one and a half milligrams. So it's right on that edge. So we have signs out in the reservation saying one pill can kill. I see them around other places. It is absolutely true. You get, you, you are, you get that slightly stronger pill, and that's it. Just one is all it takes. So yeah, we we have gone. We are on. We are beyond harm reduction, and we are full on into death reduction. James Smith um, is with us as well. You're a urinalysis tech uh, at at Great Circle Recovery. What does that job entail? That looks like when they first come in the doors, they start an intake process, and we give them a UA to kind of see where they're at. And what kind of help they can get. Meaning to see what's in their system. Yeah. And you're the one who says, hey, um, I need you to pee in this cup. Yes. How do you, what's your approach to doing that? Well, I'm a man long-term recovery too, so I feel like I know how to talk to addicts. I'm like myself, I just say, hey, you know, you're going to have to go pee. You need some water. I'll let them have some water wherever they need. Just treat them nice. What's the purpose of that? I mean, what, and maybe, um, Jim Lado, this is a question for you, but, but what do you do with the results of that first test? Well, there's a couple of things. One is it's a state and federal requirement. So that's part of it. But more importantly, it's really just to see where we're starting from, what, what the patient is using at the time. Um, I mean, we, can, we assume that, you know, that they're using what they tell us they are, but sometimes people don't really realize, especially, it's not less, less now, but it used to be that we get people in to say, oh, I'm using heroin, and we do the test and say, no, actually, <laughs> you're using fentanyl. Uh, and we still get people sometimes, oh, I'm just using the oxycodone. No, you're not. You're, they're using fentanyl. So that's important to know. Plus, it's also, um, nobody these days is just using one drug. So there's that. I mean, and there are other things we have to be concerned about. So if somebody's also using benzodiazepines, for example, Valium, Xanax, that sort of group, um, those interact synergistically with all opioids, including methadone, and can cause respiratory depression and death. So we need to be, if somebody's using benzodiazepines or barbiturates, which you don't see much anymore, or alcohol, those all can react synergistically with methadone and increase the risk so we need to be more cautious when we're going up on the dose with those folks because they're using these other compounds. Um, and some of it, too, we just want to make sure that we know what the, per, you know, the person's using what they think they're using. James, you, you mentioned that you are um, in recovery yourself. How did you end up at Great Circle Recovery? Well, when I got clean and sober, I knew that that's how it works. You want to... You want to get clean and sober yourself and then help the next person get clean and sober. I kind of filled a lot of different places out. <clears throat> they weren't really my fit. And when this place opened up, I thought it would be a good opportunity. And just the way it all works out, it's, it's almost like it was meant to be. And it, it's a good fit. I like working there. How long have you been sober? Uh, 23 months. What was going on in your life before that? Just... Like everybody else, there's some, there's layer, like something happens and then that, you pull that layer back and it was, well, it was this. For me, it was, it was, uh, I was always, always pulled to toxic relationships and 
behind that, my coping skill was to use or get drunk. And that's what I did. That's the only skills I had, but not anymore. Hmm. Am I right that you'd had 18 months clean and then the day you went back to using, uh, you OD'd on fentanyl? Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what Jim Laidler was talking about. Yeah, like I said, I only take one pill. I only took, I only took two hits off it. And then I was out, and I got Narcan a few times. That was my eye-opener. I'm like, drugs are different now. I'm not, like, this, there's literally no joke. That's, that's the end result of drugs nowadays is you die or you overdose. So that changed your understanding of, of your options, or at least it, it opened your eyes about the risks. Yeah. That's, there's no gray area. You're eventually going to, something bad eventually going to happen with fentanyl. And with the, <clears throat> with the UAs that, I, that I, I see the results, and it's not, like you said, it's not just one. It's everything that they throw into those pills. It, it's, not a, it's not a good game to play anymore. My understanding is that part of your job, in addition, in addition to doing those um, UAs, the, the urine analysis, is to go out in the street, to, to do outreach, to, to get people to seek treatment. What were you looking for when you would see if, um, if you could find people to see if you could get them to seek help? I mean, there's obvious, like, the, the wounds and the, the swelling, just the look of the homeless people. And then it goes past that. Just you can look in the despair in their eyes and just, just their living situation, just the just they're, lo- they're low. The lows are really low nowadays. Jennifer Worth, you wanted to jump in. We went to some areas where we know people are using fentanyl and we just handed out information and we were just talking to anybody that we could talk to about naloxone, overdose prevention, and just trying to do outreach. So I, I'm curious, at this point, my, my assumption would be that, that everyone you're talking to, I mean, what would they say? I guess maybe this is my, my naivete, or, but I assume that that they know what you're telling them, um, that they, they know what they're doing could kill them, but they're addicted and maybe feeling helpless. But I guess I'm wondering what, what do you think you can tell them that they don't already know? There's not a lot we can tell them, except that when they're ready, there's you know programs and just making sure they know where the resources are. And a lot of the people we talked to, they all were talking to each other about different, they have different experiences like, oh, I tried Sublocade and this is what happened. Oh, I tried Methadone and this is what happened. Oh, I tried Suboxone and this is what happened. And they would tell us their stories. And so I just like kind of hearing those stories because I think it's important to understand the experience of the people that you're trying to help really important. Um, and there's not anything that I can tell them. Um, it's more about them feeling like people care about them and want them to get help. And I think if they know that people care, like going back to that, that value that Grand Ronde has, it can do more. Kelly Rao, you want to jump in too? I do. Um, I think also what it does is it builds our credibility in the community. It, and it builds it not just for Great Circle, but it builds it out at Grand Ronde too, because it allows for the mobile unit when we're out in um, with it in McMinnville and Sheridan that it, it's getting that message out that if you don't live in Salem or Portland, but you live in one of those outlying communities, that we have those mobile services also, and that it's something that you can access there also. Mm-hmm. James Smith, one, one of the issues that I think is, is connected to this and, and maybe was underlying what, what I, one thing I was sort of curious about with, with Kelly and Jennifer is over the years when we've talked to people in recovery, we've often heard that the person who, who is dealing with the addiction, it has to come from them first. That no matter how many times people, people talk to you, the, the desire to change, it has to first come from, from you. I, I mean, I'm wondering, first of all, if that, if that rings true to you. Yeah, you got to, I've done whole, everybody's always told me, I went to prison, I went to treatment, but until something internally clicked and where I wanted to change, um, you're not going to do it unless you want to do it for yourself. And if you have a little bit of want to, just all you need is a little bit and then just start doing what other people do and go where other people go that are trying to stay clean. 
And before you know it, you got 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, a year, you're working. Just those things happen once you, I think, I think recovery is like a reward system. Like once we see, once we see the benefits, like for me, I've, I've got my kids back, my apartment, my job, all the things. And once you see those, these things that you get, <clears throat> the old life slowly fades away. But you got, you got to keep it right in the, in the forefront of your mind that bad things can happen. So it's just like a fight, and you got to win or lose. Jim Laidler, what's the hardest part of your job? Oh, um, <clears throat> some of the hardest part is just getting people to realize how serious the problem has become. I think a lot of the, in the community, especially, there's this feeling that this is fentanyl is just sort of the same old, same old. It's just uh, it's just heroin, heroin in a different wrapper. But I see fentanyl as being a real game changer. Uh, for over a hundred years, heroin was the the big dog. It was the big problem. And I mean, my parents talked about seeing people using heroin back when they were in college. So I mean, it's a really ancient. I'm not a young man. So, <laughs> it. But then suddenly, fentanyl came on and. I'm afraid people have gotten so used to the idea that of how you know they know they know how to treat heroin and they're just treating fentanyl like it was heroin, and it's not. Uh, it's a lot more potent. It's a lot more addictive. It's a lot harder to deal with. And on top of that, there are bigger and badder things coming. We're already seeing them on the East Coast, the uh, nitazine family. So that's a whole other group of opioids that'll be here on the West Coast before too long. We're seeing other, there's this multiplication of new novel drugs that are coming out. And, you know, the, each of them has their own peculiarities, right? Right now we're starting to see in the Portland area in Salem, um, xylazine, which has been a plague in Philadelphia and in New York, and now it's here. And that's going to be another problem we're going to have to deal with and have to deal with it in new ways. And I think... Some, a lot of the old thinking about heroin um, isn't going to work because with fentanyl, things are happening faster. People are addicted faster. And one of the biggest problems we have is that it coming, it's coming in this pill form. And whereas young people in their teens might have been a little put off the idea of smoking heroin or injecting heroin pills, that's, I mean, that was sort of traditionally how people started an opiate addiction was they... You know, we used to joke about it. You go create raid grandma's medicine cabinet. And they start, the pills have a very low barrier for young people. And the problem is, is that this isn't oxycodone or hydrocodone. This is fentanyl. And people are getting addicted rapidly. And it's extremely powerful. And they get in deep quickly. And, you know, one of the things that is really going to have to change in the community is the approach we have towards youth. And that's one thing we're doing that's a little different than a lot of the other clinics in that we will see people under the age of 18. Most places don't. And the problem is we're now seeing people in their late teens who are heavily addicted to fentanyl. And we will probably start seeing people in their mid-teens and their early teens heavily addicted to fentanyl. And if there's no place for them to go, then they're going to be dying. Right now, fentanyl overdose is the number one killer in people 18 to 45. Nationwide. Nationwide. And in Oregon. Yeah. So, you know, that's something we really have to look at in a completely different way. James Smith, what's keeping you clean right now? Just my, just my, my life. I like my life today. Hmm. I, Could And you wouldn't have said that at earlier parts of your life? No. I did meth for like 21 years. Just miserable. I would never have said. Oh, there was parts where I put on a good facade and everything's good, but it was never really good because I never worked on the inside. Addiction starts from, from trauma and past stuff and it all builds up and you got to work on it. That's what good thing about Great Circle Recovery is those counselors, they really... From the time you walk in those doors, everybody generally cares. And that's what we need to, to fight this. 
That was James Smith. He's part of the Great Circle Recovery Team doing urinalysis and outreach. We also heard from medical director Jim Laidler. We end today with Ebony Clark, who is with us as well. She directs behavioral health services for the Oregon Health Authority. I asked her to give us a sense for the level of need statewide for substance use disorder treatment and the availability of that treatment. So that has to do with um, capacity. And, you know, I think that uh, what I'll say is, is that before the pandemic, um, there were issues with uh, a lack of capacity in terms of, you know, various um you know, access to care, whether it was from the outpatient realm where someone could, you know, uh, get community-based services once or three times a week, all the way up to residential or inpatient care. And then we experienced the pandemic just which just uh, exacerbated those issues. And so then with the impacts of the pandemic and the workforce shortages, um, we're at this all-time high of not having enough uh, capacity. And so right now I'm thinking long and hard about residential levels of care and inpatient levels of care. And um, we know that um, we probably need at least, you know, and this is just a a guesstimate, but we need, I'd say, the last report I saw, we need a minimum of, you know, two to 3,000 different uh, types of uh, bed capacity when we think about residential, whether we're thinking about substance use disorder treatment or if we're thinking about uh, mental health specific, and then the middle co-occurring. And when we then couple the issue with, okay, we have an organization that's ready to uh, provide services, we got to hire, we have to staff up. And so then because we're in this workforce shortage, um, that delays uh, the, the the launching of, of services coming online. Um, just I'm, to be clear, you're saying 3,000 more than we have well, right now? Well, I'll just say that um, here's what I can say. I um, know that there's been a couple recent studies in the last year and a half, and I know that there was a recent uh, study that looked at the substance use continuum of care, and it identified that we didn't have enough residential beds specific to SUDS. And so because... So uh, that's an, the I'm substance sorry. use disorder. Substance use, yes, yeah, substance okay. use uh, disorder treatment services. Um, because I'm four months into my new role, and there's been a lot of transition at OHA um, and under the uh, guidance and leadership of the new administration, Governor uh, Tina Kotek, um, you know, I've been tasked with actually uh, facilitating a, uh, a study between now and the end of this year to do a thorough assessment to really look at between substance use disorder and mental health uh, residential capacity services, what do we really need? What do we have? And I'll just say that in this current biennium, specific to 21-23, there's a number of additional beds that will be coming online. And I'll say that we're anticipating um, in the next two years, we'll have about close to 400 to 500 beds coming online. But again, because of the workforce challenges that even impact construction and siting, it's two years out. I want to turn to measure 110. Um, it was it decriminalized drug possession in the state. And the idea was that it would also m- make it easier for people to access treatment. But according to reporting from OPB and, and a lot of other places, that, that second part really hasn't happened yet. Citations that hopefully would encourage people into treatment, they're often thrown away, sometimes right in front of a police officer. Um, and then because of the part of partly because of the shortage you're talking about, even if someone does say, all right, I'm, I will seek treatment, there isn't necessarily treatment for them. Do you have a sense for when this the promise of, you know, supplying this the demand for drug treatment when it's actually going to be met? Yeah, no, that's a good question. And I would say that it's it's um, it's going to be iterative. And and so. 
what we have to be able to do is to be innovative and creative and looking at what are some other uh, emerging services and supports or practices that we can bring online um, that are more likely to be community-based while waiting for this new level of capacity to come online. Um, well, what's an example that you have in mind? I mean, what's, what's something, a community-based stopgap? Yeah, no, that's a good. So, um, so you brought up uh, culturally specific. And so um, I think about culturally specific and culturally responsive services. And so um, traditionally, uh, the way that we treat individuals who are impacted by substance use uh, issues and challenges is through uh, the Western medicine model. And uh, a lot of times there's not uh, room or it's not traditional modes of healing in a lot of various communities of color are not necessarily considered. And so, you know, through this awareness of trying to be value-based and value-oriented in, in what we bring on because we're humans, there's there's been this effort, and I think we really saw it play out in the pandemic, of starting to um, support and fund and resource traditional modes of healing. So for example, um, in the African-American community, you know, um, it's all about storytelling. It's about singing. It's about dancing. It's about being in community. Um, you know, and a lot of times, you know, um, African-Americans when seeking support will, um, go to their um, spiritual higher power. And so really starting to be intentional in terms of partnering with faith-based organizations is an example to then carry out some of those traditional modes. You know, I asked earlier um, what different people's ideas of success are, and the, the starkest version was fewer people dying. I mean, it was, it was as, as basic as that. So someone did not die today. What's your definition of success for your own job? You have the unenviable job of being in charge of behavioral health for the state at a time when there are twin enormous crises of substance use disorder and, and mental illness um, that are both that are very public. And that's one difference now because of homelessness. A lot of this is, is more visible to, to many people than it maybe it would have been 20 years ago, even five years ago. But I'm curious for you personally, what success is? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. I'd say that, you know, um, first and foremost, uh, my success is rooted in not hopes, but what, what has to be done. Um, and, you know, for me, um, the approach to success is not based on one individual person. It, it's a collective effort. Um, reflecting on the issues that we're seeing specific to um, fentanyl, it's going to take, it, it has to take a more intentional collaborative approach. And so besides just relying on the behavioral health system or the healthcare system, we have to also start to be more intentional and step into thought partnership with um, our first responders and with law enforcement. Because just as it was uh, raised today, we are chasing the intersection of uh, these new uh, levels of uh, lethal potency drugs while also trying to chase the science to uh, figure out how do we mitigate it. So to success to me is being able to have a menu of services and supports um, that allows someone to step into their journey of recovery and healing um, the way that they need to. Um, I'd say that success for me is being able to um, begin to bring online and fund emerging practices that are not, like I said earlier, rooted necessarily in just Western medicine. Um, getting away from this, it has to be either, you know, black or white. We are complex and we are unique and we cannot take a cookie cutter approach to the services um, that we're looking to bring on to be effective for those out there suffering. And just briefly, I mean, we heard from Jim Laidler this sort of chilling notion that that 
maybe even worse pills are on the way. If, if we're thinking upstream about the people who haven't yet taken them, whatever, and, and you know, who knows what else is there, how do we build a more resilient society where people feel less of a need to escape from pain? That's a really great question. I think that, um, you know, what I will say is, is that in the pandemic, we learned a lot about ourselves. And I think that at least from the behavioral health perspective, we were able to do things that we thought we never could do. Um, And part of it is, quite frankly, we also have to take an emergency response approach to this issue specific to illicit substances because uh, one life lost is too many. Ebony Clark, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Ebony Clark, the Director of Behavioral Health Services for the Oregon Health Authority. She joined us at St. Anthony's Church recently as we focused on the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde's Great Circle Recovery Clinics. Thanks very much to the Oregon Community Foundation for helping make this show and our whole solutions-oriented series possible, and to Father Pat at St. Anthony's Church. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. Have a great day. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, and Michael, Kristen, Andrew, and Anna Kern. information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.